A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who have shaped us, which is now out in paperback. If you like book chat, you might like to sign up to my newsletter. Find it at furtherreading.substack.com. And if you're listening on the day this is released, the 8th of April 2020, I will be live on Waterstone's Instagram tonight, interviewing our fabulous former guest, Holly Bourne, about her brilliant new novel, Pretending. We recorded this episode with Lissa Evans in North London on a very rainy day last October when the world looked and felt very different. Obviously, we're not able to record our series as usual and go into people's homes, and we've had to postpone some of the episodes that we were really looking forward to bringing you. But we hope that this one-off brings you some comfort and cheer. Anyone who is familiar with Lissa's wonderful books... Most famously, Their Finest Hour and a Half, Old Baggage and the Wedwabbit Children's Series will know that Lissa is just the best company. She's smart, she's warm, she's charming, she's joyous. Coming into her cosy home and nosing around her bookshelves was the literary equivalent of coming off a shipwreck and being given a crate of hot buttered crumpets and the run of an airing cupboard. Lissa is hot butter for the soul. And I hope you find this as uplifting as we did. Here is a really lovely combination of cookbooks and recipe books and novels and reference books. So, oh, love, sex and war. That sounds exciting. <laughs> That's part of my World War Two shelf. I did, I, I, I've written uh, two books set in World War Two, and I'm writing a third. And uh, I uh, accumulated an entire bookshelf full of World War Two reference books at one point, but I pruned them. So I'm now down to the essential stuff that was difficult to get or I particularly loved or that I will use again. Do you have any favourites? Are there any books that just keep coming up? I do. I mean, this, this, this book here, which is called How We Lived Then by Norman Longmay, that was published when I was about 13 and my elder sister bought it for my dad for one Christmas. She was a sociology student. And my dad said, you know, what do I need to read that for? I lived through it. But I took it and read it and reread it and reread oh, it. So this is the copy that he was given for Christmas? No, sadly not, oh. no. But it's, it's been used as much as if it were. And um, it's, it's not, um, not a very political book. It's not a, a sociological study of the home front like Juliet Gardner's later books, which I've got, um, Wartime Britain. 
Um, but it, it's got tremendous detail about what it was actually like to live through it. Chapters about, you know, what you put in Christmas stockings or what you ate or what you listened to radio where you went on holiday during the war. And um, I read it and reread it and reread it and it became a sort of obsession, the home front. So when I ended up actually writing a book set in it, um, I already had a sort of baseline of knowledge. Mm. This is if I had my own memories. So that's a real favourite. Um, I love that I should say that I've opened this on page 192, between 192 and 193, the crowded classroom. Um, this has been so read and so loved that it's in two separate volumes now. The glue has shattered them. That's right. Um, oh, there are so many that I love. I, I, said, I wrote a book set during the... Um, about the making of a film during the Second World War, their finest hour and a half. So I've got quite a lot of film books as well. There's um, The Celluloid Mistress, which is an extraordinary um, set, set during uh, film 1930s about filmmaking. And look at the cover of it. I promise I'm going to put these books back. Yeah, no, leave them. Um, so we have The Celluloid Mistress. This is, this is, <laughs> this is an autobiography, um, or part of an autobiography of a film writer set during the 1930s, ah. and called Rod- uh, Rodney Ackland. He was 19 when he had some plays uh, on in London, and then he was um, he was pulled into the world of screenwriting. And, yeah, it's covered in caricatures. I do, because there is Emlyn Williams, not very well known now, but whom I'm particularly fond of, because on that shelf there, a shelf of favourites, I've got his autobiography called George, which is one of the nicest, funniest, best autobiographies I know. Oh, really? So, so have a look at it? Yeah. George, this was given to me by the same sister who bought How He Lived Then, actually. It was given to me when I was about 15. And Emlyn Williams was a... He was the son of a publican in North Wales. And he was very, very bright and very, very stage-struck. And he went to... He got a scholarship to Oxford and then he became an actor. And then he wrote a play called um, A Night Must Fall, which is, and, and, which is still performed a sort of piece of hokum really about a murderer with a head in a hat box but anyway he was a, <laughs> he was a huge figure in British uh, plays and films in the 30s and 40s and then sort of fell away I thought he was a great actor but he wrote an autobiography called George and it's completely wonderful it's it's beautifully written it's sparkling it's funny it's idiosyncratic and I think actually I absorbed some of his um, phraseology and I think I think it's responsible for part oh, of my own writing style. That's interesting. That voice is <laughs> I, I do wonder. something that you... Yeah, it's one of them. One, one, one of my major influences. Yeah. I really love that as well, how you can have an autobiography or a biography. And even if the subject is sort of new to you or not very well known, that the story and the writing can be so compelling that yes. you're swept Absolutely. into it anyway. Absolutely. He wrote a follow-up volume called Emlyn, but that's slightly less interesting because oh. he's famous by that point, you know. Not no origin story. No, no origin story. No. So did you and your sister read a lot of the same books or swap many books when you were growing up? I've got two older sisters and I was heavily influenced by both of them. So um, well, they're sort of um, nine and six years older than me. So so their shelves I, I, were something I trawled through and, and read a lot of books that they passed on, yes. Were they quite open to you reading anything you found or were there any books where they said, oh, perhaps not this one just yet, or you had to um, sneak under a pillow? They never did. I remember secretly bringing Lady Chatterley's Lover back uh, to my room when I was about 13 or 14 that happened to be on one sister's bookshelves. But um, on the whole, though, they, 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 were, they were very open about it or perhaps they didn't read the rude books at home <laughs> either, you know. <laughs> Had a secret stash somewhere. Yeah. What did you think of Lady Chatterley at the time? Oh, did she... so boring, but the rude bits were great, you know. <laughs> as much as I think of it now, really. I often think with D.H. Lawrence, sometimes the rude bits, you're going through it and going through it, and you're like, oh, she, she put forget-me-nots where. 
I've never been a fan of D.H. Lawrence, I'm afraid. He's never, as an adult, it's never drawn me. God, it's the fact that nobody ever comes in and says, oh, you know, what's for tea tonight? <laughs> you know, it's all so high-flown. It's all so painfully emotional. I can't, I, can't, I can't enjoy it. I think it takes a lot of confidence to say there are certain writers where it's difficult to say, oh, I, I feel like I really should love this writer a lot more than I do. Yes. It's a bit like I had to read a lot of Thomas Hardy at school because I'm from Dorset. And oh, it's like, oh, girls, you'll like this because it's where you are. Oh, I can see why he is important and why we must read him, but I'm... Well, there is I'm, no love here. Absolutely. I'm in a slightly uh, interesting situation at the moment because I, I occasionally appear on Backlisted Pod, but I've agreed to host one, the, a Christmas special, oh. which is on Proust. Now, they've, they've asked me to do it, I think, mainly because I've never read any Proust, so what a laugh I get, <laughs> ignorant old this or So I've decided to, and uh, this is on the coffee table over here, oh, I've decided to read around and then eventually read the first... The first um, uh, volume of Swans of um, Remembrance Things Past. So, so I am on a Proust reading binge, but an, an oblique Proust reading binge. So I'm at the moment reading Monsieur Proust, which is about which is uh, based on the mem- uh, the memories of his maid Celeste, who appears in the books. I'm just about to read Lectures on Proust in a Soviet Prison Camp. Also, uh, in Looking Back, One Learns to See, uh, which is by Bergstein, which is about his attitude to uh, vis- the visual arts. I've just read uh, Alan de Botton's How Proust Can Change Your Life, which, to my amazement, is terrific. Oh, really? And I absolutely zapped Can through I ask it. As well, are these, did you borrow these from the London Library? I've these, these from fabulous the London Library. Big red London Library stickers on. So I am trying to, and then I bought a copy because I knew I'd have to make notes of it, of, of, of Swan's Way, uh, which I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't have something on Proust not read. <laughs> Are you, as I suppose as well as somebody who, you know, does so much sort of research your own books, do you mind writing in books and bending back pages and things? Or oh, no, quite... I'm very, I, I, no, I don't mind at all. And they said beautiful hardbacks, in which case I won't. But virtually every book on that research shelf has got bits of paper in it and scribbles and so forth. No, I mean, books are for loving and handling. Are you good at coming back and remembering what your notes were? Or do you ever look at anything and think, what was that? Oh, well, yeah, no, I'm quite good at decoding my own execrable handwriting yeah no and but i also do tons and tons and tons of uh, typing up notes because otherwise they're worthless you have to be able to word search are there many things that you find that you sort of were captivated by but then didn't quite fit for a book but you found later has... there's there's yes there's lot there's lots of things that stay in my head or, or, or anecdotes you think oh i can use that but not in this book yes i, I do quite a lot of that and i i, I normally got file for each book which i call somewhat naffly, inspiration, which are things that just sit in my head and I, and I put them into a single file and look through them if I'm feeling a bit Does it dull. take a lot of discipline to know this is great but not for this or have you always had quite a good kind of editor's mind I, about I, I it? Got, I'm quite a good self-editor because I came from radio and TV. I, I, I was a script editor and, and I ruthlessly edit my own books. So, uh, yeah, and I spent last week, spent oh, I spent about two days refining them a paragraph which was all, you know, long, extended metaphor. And in the end, I thought, no, this is, you know, I can refine it as much as I like. It has nothing to do with what comes before or after it. And, and I, I deleted it and felt much, much better. So you, you have to know, you have to listen to your, to your heart on these. 
coming from that world, that's a brilliant discipline to have. I, I suppose as well for really hearing things. Yeah, as well it's, as it's one. I mean, in radio, it's, it's all you've got, isn't it? All you've got is the words. So it's the best possible uh, uh, training, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I do do some rewrites at the end, but generally, by the time I get to the end of a book, it's about ninety percent there. Can we look at that yeah. bookshelf behind you while we're here? Um, there's some. There's quite a lot of art books. My husband's very interested in art, so a lot of those are his. And then they're just oh, like, like all my bookshelves. They're I like to think they're eclectic, but you know they're basically a total jumble, a total jumble. Oh, brilliant! You've got two of my favourites oh, here, um, Victoria Woods. Oh, Victoria Woods scripts together. Uh, balmy and up, up to you, Porky. Yeah, fabulous. I've got a lot of scripts, and I it wasn't just coming from radio, TV. I was interested in them. I, you know, I got the Forty Towers scripts when I was about. 13, like lots of people I know who work in comedy, who worked in comedy. I've been obsessed with comedy since I can remember. Molesworth made me laugh at six or seven and I've never stopped looking for things that make me laugh. I love that, that having the sort of, I think knowing, knowing yourself as a writer and knowing that D.H. Lawrence... Not for me, not inspiring, not useful. <laughs> Molesworth, absolutely. Yes. I totally agree I know, with you. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? But I've, yes, there's no, um, as you can see, my books are not organised by any means at all, apart from, you know, I've got a shelf of gardening books, but this has got non-fiction, fiction, old, oh. new. Well, this yeah. is a book that I've heard about and wanted to read, but never actually seen. I dare say I could have made more of an effort and looked for it. You have uh, The American Way of Death oh. by Jessica Mitford about the This is the American business. funeral business. Well, I've always been a fan of Jessica Mitford since reading Ons and Rebels when I was about 10 or 11. And her journalism is exceptionally good. And The American Way of Death is a fantastic skewering of the American um, funeral business, which she wrote, I think, in the 60s. And it's very, very funny and very little has changed. But later on, I um, produced a, an adaptation of The Loved One, Wars the Loved One, for radio. And I used a lot of the description of the American Way of Death as, a, as an inspiration. And in fact, I, I sent a copy of, of the, uh, the radio um, adaptation to Jessica Mitford. I don't know how I got the address. And I got a postcard back saying, you know, it brought her great joy, which I thought was oh, so Jessica-ish. And I was so happy. And what yeah. an incredible thing. Do you still have it somewhere? Somewhere for... I have, yes, yes, filed away, yeah. So she, I've always been a tremendous fan. I've got makings of a muckraker here, which is another um, anthology of her journalism. Oh, I didn't know about good. that. She's terrific. She, was, she wrote another one called The American Prison Business about the exploitation of American prisoners. There's a very funny one about... Um, enormously um, expensive creating creative writers course that you could sign on to in America what a cheat it was let us now appraise famous writers it's called uh, they're all I, I love short pieces I always have done that's what I read in bed generally and I suppose as well that comes back to that sense of economy and yes. having to make everything and count precision. and everything is essential absolutely and yeah. I think as well that she was definitely one of the first writers I came across that you can write about very serious things and factual things and be funny and make that impactful yes. rather than it you know taking away from the meaning of that's writing. absolutely true yeah and I think I think perhaps if 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 I've got anything that unifies my taste it's um it's a liking for yeah concision and precision I I don't like splurges 
Oh, what's that book there? That oh, this is the Faber Book of Reportage, which is wonderful. Again, it's... it's a, and, and in fact, this was one of the first... When I met my husband, which was very late on, we didn't meet until I was in my 40s, it's one of the first things we talked about. He's upstairs somewhere. Um, uh, the Faber Book of Reportage, which is, oh, really? which is pieces of journalism starting from Plague in Athens, which... Thucydides wrote in uh, 430 BC, and it goes on from there right up to the, the you know Vietnam reporting. Really? And so forth. Is that your copy or his copy? Uh, There's no name in it, so <laughs> who can tell? Do you have much in the way of sort of overlapping tastes? Do you lend each other? Uh, yes, yeah, he tends to read a lot of uh, political stuff and uh, non-fiction uh, political critiques which don't appeal to me but we got we got a certain crossover with art books and he likes short stories too which I like very much who are your favorite short story writers uh, Elizabeth Taylor would be my ah, favorite the right, devastating I boys I saw oh, we look at that because well, yeah, I, I saw that title and I was like wow that's that such a great name I mean she's a wonderful writer but I I actually prefer her short stories even to her novels Oh, there it is. This is... I bought this particular copy because this is the copy I found in Litchfield Library. Well, it's the same edition. Litchfield Library when I was about 13 or 14. Oh, that is a and fabulous... Does it say it was 24p on the uh, front flap? 20, 20p. 20p. I thought 24 would be an odd, specific <laughs> sort of number. And I recognised the cover and I must have got it out of Litchfield Library about 25 times. And I think this book is perfection. There isn't a story in it which isn't... Doesn't doesn't grab you by the heart, or and and some of them some of them are deeply tragic. One or two of them are very funny, and most of them are a combination. They're quite extraordinary. I can't recommend it enough. God, I love this book. It's such a great title. It's yeah. very good. I've got a lot of um, books of ghost stories as well, uh, short stories which I absolutely love. And I've got um here's another short story collection which is Dorothy Whipple stories. Uh, Dorothy Whipple I read for the first time last year and read all of her books in a great. Great goal. Isn't that the best though? When you find oh. someone and you think, oh, hello. Absolutely fantastic. And this this is a joy. Her books are they're they're of their time, but they're also universal, so, like all the best books. When was she writing? Uh twenties, thirties, no, thirties, forties, fifties. But I like the look of the girls' budget. Oh the girls' budget. No, this was bought by uh my husband, uh, because this is um for old baggage. This ah. is the kind of girls' gang. That, that appears in old baggage. There's um, a, a, a girls' group called the Amazons that runs around on Hampstead Heath and, and throws javelins and things. And the girls' budget was, I think, it's published a little earlier than that, I think it's Edwardian. But it's full of stirring tales of... of there's a picture here on the frontispiece. They strained until they thought their arms must crack. And it's two... Uh, well, there's a girl and a boy, but the girl's in oil skins. And they seem to be pulling at a wreck with ropes oh. from the top of a cliff which seem they seem unlikely to be able to Proportion carry that, in that off picture is confusing <laughs> yes, as is. well they're sort of in the foreground <laughs> and then the wreck looks like it came out of a bottle that's right and they've got um there's yes they're fabulous short stories so some rather light and some about tremendous adventure she'll do it he muttered she'll just do it there's a guy in a um a, a boat in a very very high sea um, so that's the girls' budget, and also I was very keen on that kind of cover for old baggage, and I yes. did end up with that kind of thing. Yeah, oh, that looks fabulous. It's interesting because I suppose I think now 
there's all this conversation about, you know, we must, we need more strong women in culture and where are the strong women? They've always been oh, there, haven't they? Sex, it drives me absolutely mad. Yes, of course, they've always been there. A, be, a strong woman just means a woman with a big personality. Mm. Who hasn't known one of those in the, going back generations in their family? Well, you'd hope, yeah. wouldn't you? Yes, absolutely. One of my favourite things, the most useful things for me writing were books are actually written and published during the war because then you would know that everything in them was precise. And yeah. one of my favourite books I read many times was uh, this book called Raiders Overhead, Diary of the London Blitz by Barbara Nixon, who was, there she is, there's a picture of a... She's a strong woman, well, isn't she? splendid looking woman in ARP uniform. And she was an ex-actress who became a full-time warden during the Second World War. And it is, and she's a socialist and she's witty and she um, presents such a vivid picture. And she's also, and this, this happens quite a lot, quite critical of aspects of government policy, quite critical of social uh, care during this time. And they were allowed to publish that. You know, it's quite interesting that actually during a war she was allowed to slag off the government. Oh. And that, that's, that's quite a common... A thing that I find in some of my World War Two oh, collections. Yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised yes. by that. Yes. Um, here's another one, Post D by John Strachey, which is a fantastic oh, little edition. Some experiences of an air raid warden. That is another beautiful, beautiful copy. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And again, he wrote this. He he became a part-time warden, and and this is published in 1941. And what I love about this book, again, you get a real taste for. Um, what the, the the physical aspects of things during the Second World War because it's got very small margins, it's very meanly published, you know, it, it's had a paper cover that's mainly come off, it's a very small font. Stuff was published, but it wasn't published in the style that it had been before the You've war. You've got the previous owner, I think, has written their name very neatly. Unreadable. Will something? I think I. It's very sort of very precise writing, though. <laughs> Maybe it's some kind of code. <laughs> Maybe it is. But yes, it's a terrific book. This um, this shelf here has got a lot of a lot of my favourite stuff. I read Ooh, again lovely. and again, and double copies. Here's the, I think possibly the favourite book I read in the last year, which is Roger Deakins' Waterlog, and he was um, fantastic guy. He was pro- possibly one of the first psychogeography writers. And sorry, oh, sorry, he was a and he uh, loved swimming outdoors. He had a sort of moat on his Norfolk farm, and he decided to swim. Swim Britain. And Roger would plunge into anything. Freezing <laughs> sea, a, 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 a tiny tarn on a moor, a river. And it's wonderfully written. And it's got all the joy of swimming, plus plus a lot of um, interesting sociology and geography. I love this book. So when was it written? It was written, I think, 1998 or something. Oh, no, uh, this was in 1999. That's right. And it's a... God, it's a good book. Um, what else? Go on. American Way of Death Revisited. Oh, oh, that's right. And I've got lots of double copies on here because I've got uh, at least two copies of The Rings of Saturn on here, which is uh, W.G. Sabal, one of my favourite books. Fabulously gloomy story, looping on story. I've got two copies I see of Dipped in Vitriol, which is a fantastic anthology of hatchet reviews. Oh, this is one of my favourite books. Ooh. Early Havoc by June Havoc. Now, June Havoc was the little sister. She was baby June. Gypsy's little sister. Ah. Yeah, you know Gypsy Rose Lee? Yes. And it's her side of the story. And both she and her sister, although completely uneducated formally, because their mother was an absolute monster who dragged them round, both really good writers. Gypsy Rose Lee became a detective story writer and was very good. And this is... 
brilliantly written account. I wasn't sure what you were going to say then. I thought Gypsy Rosalie became a detective. Story writer. Story writer, that's right. Well, this is a fantastic account of, of life on the road and the last years of musical. But also, after she breaks away from the family, do you remember in the film, Baby June runs away? Yeah. Well, she, she does run away and she, she marries very, very young and then splits up. But she's got no money at all and she takes place, she, she takes part in dance marathons. And it is the most brilliant, detailed description of dance I, marathons. Like and him, I, they shoot horses, don't I they? think he must have read it. I think uh, you must have read this because it's such detail and it's so brilliant. And this is one of my all-time favourite books. Oh, how brilliant. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so glad that exists. That's <laughs> really it's good. Really thrilling. Well, I think you've got um, some of more of my favourites, uh, the um, Armistead Mopan. More Aww. tales and further tales. More tales. My favourites are the ones that uh, are more real. There's the fantasy plots don't. I mean, I love Armistead Mopan, but the fantasy plots don't interest me as much. And oh, so, so I particularly not love the Grace Cathedral cannibals. No, amnesia they and... don't do it for me. No, so I I love his in, more inconsequential mm. uh, uh, interactions between ordinary, except they're all extraordinary people. And again, I prefer the later ones. You know, Marianne in Autumn. Yeah, something I absolutely adore. Because I do. I love the way he writes. I think, again, he's a really good economist with the dialogue and how much it tells you about the people and Absolutely. about what's happening to them. Absolutely. And in fact, I did the, when I went to San Francisco, I did the, you know, the, the tramping around trying to find Barbary steps just like <laughs> everybody. Um, yeah, he's wonderful. What else we got here? Uh, you, do you know, oh, one of my all time favourite books, uh, Neil the Gaiman's The Graveyard, the Graveyard book, book, which is. One of those books, I mean, I haven't read a great deal of Neil Gaiman. I know some people are absolutely fanatical about him. And I don't know that I've read any of his, his purely adult books. This book, I think, is so wonderful. And it's one of those books that so, it strikes me as so perfect. It's almost, when I read it, it was almost like it had always been there and I just hadn't read it before. Oh. It's it's a, it's a book that, you know, it's like a fossil. It's always been mm. there in time and I was lucky enough to find it. I think it's the most magnificent book. And it's right next to another book that I've read and reread, which is Ian Oh, she's in just Annie Prue now. She used to be Ian Prue. Uh, the Shipping News. And I love this book, but I particularly love this book because my mother was a the fastest reader in the world. I mean, she read so fast that we used to sort of test her. We didn't really believe that she could read that fast. <laughs> and, and she particularly loved this book. And I and she used to read it once a year. And now I read it once a year, oh. and it's like having a conversation with my mum every oh, time that's I read really it. Lovely. Was there a particular time that she liked to? Like, was there a season that was time for the shipping news? Um, I don't. Yes, maybe coming up to Christmas because that's reminding me. She um she loved all sorts of books, but during Lent she used to give up chocolate and detective stories. Oh, that was her. You know, so she regarded detective stories as her vice. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, maybe shipping news is Christmas. I mean, I love it. It's so rich. It's so dense. Um. It's, again, a mass of stories. God, I do love stories. Really yeah, like a Christmas yeah. pudding. Yeah. Something really new is in everybody. That's absolutely how it is. In fact, that's one of the discussions I have with Andy Miller because plot is not as important to him as it is to me. And for me, it's, all, it, it's half. It's half of everything. Oh, well, me and Andy Miller both love Anita Bruckner very much. And she's, she's not wild about plot. <laughs> she's not wild about plot. And, in fact, I was fairly resistant to her until, again, talking to the mighty influential Andy Miller and I read The Latecomers and was knocked sideways by it and also Look at Me and then I read Hotel to Lack and I thought I'm really glad I didn't read Hotel to Lack first because yes. I really thought it was absolutely 
I do think, because that's the book, and I think it puts a lot of people off, Goodness and it's like, oh, oh, it's it's written in the 70s, might as well have been written in the 1920s. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't be saying this, should I? But anyway, there we oh, no, go. It's yeah. right, and she, she's not going to come for us, it's fine. This is another favourite book. This is uh, Florence King, Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady. Oh, that looks great. It's one of the funniest books I know. She, she God, she takes no prisoners. She uh, grew up in the 1950s, she had a fantastically eccentric parents and uh she had a her, her her grandma who lived with them was a southern belle who had totally failed with her own daughter florence king's mother um she 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 grandma had built a gazebo for her daughter to receive visitors in you know, and, and and the mother actually hung a punch ball in the gazebo that's what florence king's mother was like so uh this, this is uh, the story of Florence King's years on the anvil as her grandmother tries to hammer into a southern lady. She fails <laughs> totally. And in fact, the, the last... Um, is, I mean, she loves, she loves her grandmother, but the last um, s- sentence is, uh, the last paragraph is, of the introduction is, this is the story of my years on her anvil. Whether she succeeded in making a lady out of me is for you to decide, but I will say one thing in my own favour before we begin. No matter which sex I went to bed with, I never smoked on the street. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? And I, my mum loved this book as well. I absolutely love it. It's brilliantly funny. I just read a book and it's a collection of essays. And helpfully, I can only remember that the author is called Helen, but it's called Southern Lady Code. And oh. it's great fun. It's very, they're lovely because they are quite kind of in, inconsequential, but in yeah. a nice way. A lot of detail about nothing, but very funny. And mm-hmm. it's a sort of, you know, if you can't say anything nice, say it like a southern lady. <laughs> and I think she lives in New York now, but it's sort of the rules that she grew up with and how she sort of lives how with them now. But it, it's, it's great fun. I'm sure she knew that, but part of Florence yeah. King's is, is how southern ladies say everything three times. It's kind of like the, the, the Catholic version. It's like the southern <laughs> version of a novena, you know. Every, everything's recycled. 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We'll be back to Lissa soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book more valuable than an Ocado delivery slot. This week, it's I Capture the Castle by Jodie Smith. I first read this when I was a teenager. Uh, Producer Dale read it for the first time last week, so you may well have read it before, but reading it again has moved me profoundly. Just to give you a quick refresher on the story, it's all about the Mortmains. They live in abject poverty in a crumbling castle, and 17-year-old Cassandra is writing and narrating their lives. We meet her beautiful, frustrated sister, Rose, her glamorous, kind and vaguely pagan stepmother, Topaz, her father, who's broke after writing one brilliant book that he just can't follow up, and how their lives are completely transformed when the Cotton Brothers arrive from America and they find themselves captivated by the castle and its residents. This is a weird, funny, beautiful, magical and devastating book and I've forgotten so much of Cassandra's wisdom, of Topaz's utter kindness and the fact that this book has the only literary clergyman I can bear to spend any time with. Even if you've read it, it's worth reading it again and if you're meeting the Mortmains the first time, oh, this is going to break you in the loveliest way. It's the ultimate comfort read. Only because it is desperately and profoundly comforting to know that other people find life exactly as desolate, abundant, joyous, broken, nourishing, faded, technicolour, overwhelming and love and fear-filled as you do. I Capture the Castle is published by Vintage and it's also available for download on Audible. Now back to Lissa. But I understand you uh, worked on Father Ted. Oh, yes, yes. I'm and, happy to talk about it. I've got the... Um... Pretty much my favourite thing <laughs> in the whole world. And I've often thought in the unlikely event I ever go on Mastermind, <laughs> I might do Father Ted. Oh, really? Ted. Yes. Oh, really? Here's a, I've got a book here called Beyond Belief, which is a book of essays by somebody who was in an episode of Father Ted, <gasps> Liam Fay. But, yeah, no, which... I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to be asked about it because it's so easy for me who to was, talk was about Liam it. Who was Liam Fay? Oh, he had a... The he, dancing priest. You no, know, he had a tiny so. part in... No, dancing priest is based on the guy on the cover. But um, oh. Liam Fay had a small part in the Christmas Ted that's all he was one of the Graham and Arthur's mates I think oh in the um, getting lost in the, the uh, no he was uh, won the, the priests uh, priest of the year award ah. in, which, in which it was heaving with priests there were so many but thinking um, about um, Catholicism and weird rules and repetitions I think I love it so much because I grew up in a very 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 strict Catholic family oh oh okay so it'll so. mean even more to you than it does to me probably but um, no I'm always delighted to talk about it because it, it was such an intense period of my life that I remember everything about it I'm always hoping somebody will pin me down and ask me specifically about how we cast somebody or where the prop came from there's nothing there's nothing I wouldn't be happy to answer on it oh brilliant <laughs> I'm delighted. This this episode of your book is about to be very, very different. Or maybe we can talk about, um, and this is me being like, I'm a big fan and I know everything about it and I'm immediately about to forget everything, but um, the episode where the glamorous lady novelist comes. Oh, the first series. I didn't do the first series. Uh, Uh, That was Jeffrey Perkins. I I was just a fan of that. So uh, I did the second and third series. Damn it. That was very funny, (laughs) wasn't it? Really brilliant. Gemma Craven. Gemma Craven played the... Uh, I yeah. did like that sort of 
it's interesting, I think, how I don't know if that sort of writer exists in that way anymore. And there's been lots of talk, I think, about how like bogbusters are dead. Like, no, bogbusters are back and they're bigger than ever. And what is a bogbuster? <laughs> but that period of it being a sort of fantastically glamour and glamorous enough to sort of bring, you know, a bit of glamour to Craggy Island. Yes. And set her books are full of filth, aren't they? Filth. Yes. Absolute Right filth. me sideways, that was another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how much Pauline must enjoy doing that bit of the script. God. This here is an example of another genre I absolutely love. We talk about comedy books, but this is the type of book I can read sitting on the sofa and it's about people suffering tremendously during adventures. And I do love that, anything, Arctic, deserts or whatever. But this book, A Voyage for Madmen by Peter Nichols, is one of my all-time favourite books. I've given it to so many people and it's the story of the 1970-something or other round-the-world yacht race single-handed yacht race at a time when there was no no GPS in which you really were on your own in the middle of the ocean and what actually happened was beyond fiction it was the most perfect and awful sort of combination of circumstances uh, which resulted in a winner which <gasps> resulted in one man going mad and throwing himself at the boat another one that. there's a picture yes. you just flicked past and okay. it's just the most unhappy looking man I've ever seen well I'm oh that's Matissier oh no he was wonderful Matissier he was a French sort of philosopher who was also a brilliant yachtsman who was in the lead, went all the way round and then decided just to carry on, not to go into Britain and get the prize, but carried, he went all the way round and ended up on sort of Fiji or something, being philosophical. Wow. And because of that, he threw a whole load of other circumstances, threw a spanner in the works and, and it resulted in extraordinary tragedy and triumph. It is brilliant. It was reissued, I think, last Christmas, and I'm not surprised. So what is it that you think um, about these stories? What is it that appeals to you so much? Is it that you can read them on your sofa and know that you're not yeah. cold on a boat? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it gets my, you know, pulse up and my adrenaline rushing round while knowing that there's a cup of coffee within reach. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I'm a completely, you know, complete physical coward myself. So, you know, I can put myself in the shoes of some people at arms. <laughs> without any danger and it's almost like proof you don't they did it so we don't have to well of course i mean i wouldn't dream of it even dinghy sailing puts me off yeah it does seem a bit mad doesn't it i suppose I think, why 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 would you do that i don't know and it was extraordinary i mean they were yeah they were all on their own with no communication Oh, Night to Remember, yes. Night to Remember, this is a fantastic edition, isn't it? It's the um, Walter Lord's electrifying minute-by-minute story of the sinking of the Titanic. Wow, it's a lovely corgi edition. It's a lovely corgi edition. And when my uh, kids were very little, we... um, we used to show them the black and white version of the Night to Remember, which they thought for many, many years was Titanic. And I've never <laughs> forgotten the outrage in which they realised that they were talking about a completely different film to their schoolmates. <laughs> well, <laughs> How cruel of us. They come over, we'll watch Titanic. <laughs> I know. Titanic. I know. Those are the days when Titanic. we could... Well, that's right. Those are the days when we could get them to watch black and white films. Oh, it's a Hollywood Babylon there in um... Hollywood Babylon. This is a, a, an old book that's scandal about scandals in Hollywood, and I I quite enjoyed this book. But the book I really enjoyed was Shepperton Babylon, written by mm, Matthew Sweet. Oh, Matthew Sweet, who's a, just a wonderful writer. And Sorry, that's such me. Such a man who knows about so much, such a polymath. 
and Shepparton Babylon, which is a picture <laughs> on the front of Dirt Bogart in leather trousers. And it's so enjoyable. I must say, so Dirt Bog- his hip measurement is probably the same as around my thigh in that picture. <laughs> That's true. And I found this fantastic. I mean, you know, my excuse was I was reading it for the background of one of my characters in their finest hour and a half, who was, a, who was an actor who'd come up through silent movies. So it was fantastically useful for me. And in the film, ends up being played by Bill Nye, actually. But there is a wonderful chapter... <laughs> About Dirt Bogart insisting in a in a very bizarre film called I think the Singer Sing Not song. song yeah, yeah. which um, John Mills must have deeply regretted being in because <laughs> it turned out to be incredibly homoerotic, and um, Dirt Bogart in the tightest leather trousers, most leathery, shiny, <laughs> tighty trousers you can possibly imagine, who turned up with them on the kind of first day of shooting. <laughs> Not my own costume, <laughs> but it's fantastically enjoyable, and and it made me um, it gave. I mean, it's such a good book and so entertaining, but also gave me, uh, you know, really good insight into what I was writing about, and also made me think there's a book to be written, probably not by me, but on the very early days of silent cinema when anybody could do it. You could, you know, buy a big camera and do it in your shed. And 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 most extraordinary movies were made for no money by people with no prior ability and probably precious little talent. And that was the start of the movie industry. Uh, YouTube. <laughs> well, well, yes, that's exactly what it was like. Only perhaps with a little more ambition. Very few YouTubers use more than one camera. But um, it's absolutely amazing. I love this book. Do you are you quite good when you know what you're researching about being focused, or do you ever sort of pick something up and think? There might be something in this, there might not. I'll see if the spirit moves me. Oh, absolutely. My research is completely random. I just follow my nose. Lots of looking at uh, bibliographies at the back of books and then following up more obscure things. But also, one of my greatest uh, moments of research was in the Imperial War Museum when um, I didn't really know what I wanted. I wanted something on film. And they provided me with the three boxes, which were the archives of uh, Sidney Bernstein, who turned out to be the... the, um, the special advisor of the Ministry of Metal Film Department. And at the end of the war, somebody just upended a filing cabinet into three boxes. And it was absolutely brilliant. And it gave me the whole central premise of their finest hour and a half. And, you know, there's nothing like touching ephemera. Actual letters written at the time in a tiny bit A5 wartime, you know, tiny margins all doubled up or written on the back and telegrams. And, oh, it's marvellous. Oh, wow. And knowing no one was writing those, thinking that, you know, in I can't do the maths, trying to do the maths, 50, 60, 70, 80-odd years later that you would be... I know. Absolutely fantastic. But also what it did tell me was that, you know... I tried, I tried to be really accurate in the books, but they, they, I got a fantastic um, a correspondence between Sidney Bernstein and some guy in Hollywood. They were making Mrs. Miniver, and Sidney Bernstein was trying to remember something about the sequence of sirens in the first year of the war, and he couldn't remember whether siren had gone off during the wartime broadcast or not. And the thing was, this was about eighteen months later, so they'd already forgotten. People already forgot. Things moved so fast, so. Being an absolute stickler is not as necessary as one might think, as long as you come up with something that did happen. Yes. 
to one person than it happened to a lot of people. And people aren't. I mean, I think it possibly feels a bit like this now in, in internet times, but people aren't going looking for things. Like, oh, well, that was wrong and that wasn't quite right. Very few people. I did get a letter saying, no, 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 I think you'll find the Pepto-Bismol wasn't around the 40s. You know, at which point I get really cross. I've got an advert. I've got an advert for Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> so you are wrong. But, you know. <laughs> okay, so come to your house. I've got your address. I've got this advert. I brought down a couple of books here and... Lovely. So we've got Flamingo Feather by Lauren Zanderpost. The reason I got this is because when you open it... You've got some flamingo oh. feathers in it. And the, I got these on the, in the Carmarg. A bunch of them as flamingos flew off. So that's the reason... I oh, don't particularly goodness. like the book and there's Lissa Evans, July 1980 in it. And um, I basically keep the book because of the feathers in it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually seen any flamingo oh, feathers. They're just so gorgeous. Extraordinary. They're, there's a white shaded to glorious pink at the end. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So there we go. Book as book as box, really, book as, as box. opposed to, I don't know, I ever I finished a, a Lawrence a Fanta post. many functions. And did you, uh, the Kenneth Williams The Kenneth diaries. Williams Well, this is particularly, um, because I'm in them. No. <laughs> yes, I know. Oh my God! Wait, let me find. It doesn't actually fall open the page. I'm not that vain. So I'm gonna have to look at. <laughs> I up. think seven, seven six. I, what it was was, I started in radio, and I'll be able to say the, the year when I look this up. I started in radio in 1987, and the first thing I actually produced because we were always given old war horses to produce. And I produced a, a series called The Law Game, um, and it was what they got in. They got in three guests. And then some actors would reenact some sort of small claims court uh, uh, legal cases. And when I walked into the green room, it was uh, Neris Hughes, Dr. Stephen Buchatsky, and Kenneth Williams. Oh. And Kenneth Williams, my first show, and it was it was absolutely also quite a mad woman who was in the audience who decided to come and sit in the green room, which was very common in the Paris studio there, which is in <laughs> Low Agent Street. Um, but the reaction in the audience to Kenneth Williams and was just extraordinary and he had a lovely evening and he really enjoyed it. But he wrote about it. Saturday, 5th of December, 1987. Walked to Paris studio for the law game. Oh, no, here we go. I was, I was wrong. On the panel with me were Neris Hughes and Ian McCaskill. So I had good company. One of the actors in the playlets was called Stephen Dish. <laughs> and producer made him re-record a terribly difficult bit of comedy patter. Agony. I told Lissa Evans, producer, it was wicked of you. And she said, ah, but I'll keep most of his first reading. So I kissed her and said, oh, you're a cracker. (laughs) Shaw Taylor presided suavely over both programmes. That funny. And I didn't realise, you know, and something. How did you know? Did someone someone told me? Someone said, did you know (laughs) you're in it? Is that funny? Oh, how fabulous. So uh, so it's my, my tiny bit of fame, that one. Yeah, yeah. And um, underneath uh, Lawrence Van der Post is a book that I've read recently. I absolutely love. This Ooh. is uh, Catherine Heine's Standard Deviation, and it's so funny and so brilliantly written. I've, and this is a second-hand copy because I've given my, I've bought and given my copies to so many people now. And it's set in New York, and it's about, well, it's about all sorts of things. But it's about a, a second marriage, um, and the parents have a, a son who is autistic, and it's about everything really but what it mainly is is fantastically funny and humane and compassionate and it's got a thanksgiving dinner in it which is a magnificent set piece of comedy and i i love this book i i've read it twice i'm undoubtedly going to read it again quite soon <laughs> see i like cozy books you like, like cozy books well let's have a look 
on here. See, here's a cosy book. Lark cries to Candlefolk. This Ooh, is a very yes. old edition, and this belonged to my wow. auntie. Ironoy Evans, Auntie Ron, she was known as, and this was on our bookshelves when I was growing up. And one of the, I must have started reading it when I was seven or eight. And I never read it all the way through. It's very discursive, and and you can read each chapter separately, like a novel. But I loved it. I loved it. And when I look back to you know, slightly boring adolescence, normal childhood and boring adolescence, I think of all the stuff I read. And thank God I did because it's it's the basis of everything I do and everything I think really. And you know, I I think if there had been computers around, then I would have been sidetracked on computer games. I love puzzles and games and that kind of thing. And I wouldn't have read all this stuff, and it wouldn't be in my head. And the fact I've got a ridiculously large vocabulary, which I can use in Scrabble and things, is entirely due to reading this sort of thing. And it's um, when you find it when your brain is at its sort of yeah, bendiest and absolutely. most absolute Stuff I learned then, and uh, including poetry, because I had a... a a wonderful teacher when I was about 11 who decided to give us all a team point if we learned 10 poems off by heart. Um, You know, and I picked up about, you know, 10 team points in one term. But the the poems I learned then, I largely still know. And I can't do it now. I can't. I I won't ask you to kind of recite them, but can you Um, remember what the poems are? Well, Kubla Khan's one, or uh, or Ulysses, you know, you know, some long ones, some very short ones. Yeah, I can remember them all. Yeah. Tennyson, Ulysses. Yeah, I a little prophet, the Nidal King by the Stillhearth among these marren crags. Match with the aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race, etc. Yeah, and it's there, it's in your head. And uh, another book on the shelves here, actually, it's over here, is relevant to this because I had to. I did a, 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 a um, an evening called the books that. The books that shaped me, or the books that made me, the books that made me a writer. Oh, um, uh, with with uh, Mrs. Trefuse, yes, Helen Brockleby. I love her. I've been she's wonderful. She's and brilliant. one of the things I chose was the English hymnal because I went to a church junior school and spent many, many what feels like days in school assembly, but singing hymns. And the vocabulary of hymns, long before I knew what half the words meant. Mm shaped my my love of language and you know you look at something like hills of the north rejoice you know paint beach warring breeze what does that mean yes. when you're seven but it doesn't matter because it stays in your head the rhythm is yeah, so insistent and so confident and the way that things are bent and things are kind of edged yes. and, yes. and you sort of I, I think it means you feel comfortable taking a lot of liberties later which is a very good that's a, thing that's a very good point the horned moon that shines by night mid her spangled sister's bright. I mean, and that made me think of spangles at the time, obviously. But the whole, <laughs> the whole concept of spangle. And, you know, it, like there's another Tennyson poem, I think, is it The Lotus Eaters? And um, there's a bit, I'm going to get this wrong, um, foaming, crisping ripples of the spray of the sea. I always thought of those Kinder Bueno bars with the creamy stuff Absolutely. Yes, I know. Yes, it's, it's funny. Yes, I know. An, uh, um, I know another poem which was uh, talks about crisp sea foam that always made me think of kind, kind of quavers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the words enroll and extol, I remember thinking very strongly that enroll sounded like a kind of savoury marmite roll, possibly a steam pudding, <laughs> like like Mr Tumnus the Fort, no, the beavers cooked in yes. Narnia, that kind of roll. And Unless, I think we should do an anthology. <laughs> savoury food for thought. Savoury food for thought. So, so... For me, it's, it's so important, uh, the, 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 the richness of language that I grew up with. And that... Uh, it can sit in your head 
for you to kind of unlock or reach for when you're ready for it yeah. and you can carry it with you but you don't necessarily have to know it all no that's absolutely true and when I, I wrote a book called Small Change for Stuart and and the subsequent one Big Change for Stuart a children's book and and Stuart's father in it is a um crossword compiler who speaks in ludicrously um uh, polysyllabic language and and I really enjoyed doing that. And what I always tell the children when I went to when I go and do school visits is the thing is I hardly had to look up any of the words. They were all in my head already. Let me see if I can I can find a particular bit. Um, this is this is a bit where uh, Stuart and his father go to the local museum where the um, where the museum keeper is very very interested in Roman remains. If you're interested in ballista, I said a loud voice behind him, then you'll find a further collection of Roman siege engines in room four. Stuart turned to see a man in a checked suit. He was wearing a badge that said Rod Felton, chief curator. In particular, there's a post-classical example known as an onager, he added. Stuart's father looked up keenly. I believe the name onager is also the Latin for wild ass, he said. Rod Felton almost jumped with delight. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> it's derived from the kicking action of the machine, which in turn is the result of torsional pressure from a twisted rope. And the latter medieval version, the mangonel, was also... And Stuart goes off and explores the museum while the you know, Greek has met Greek, so to speak. But anyway, I love writing him. Uh, Scrabble Dictionary. I, play, I was playing Scrabble last night, um, and I love playing Scrabble. I played with Carrie Rosen and Sarah Manning and Fanny Blake, so it's a writer's, writer's foursome in the local Oaxaca. But, um, uh, yes. Yeah, so oh, amazing. Going... So this is live Scrabble. I assumed yeah. you were playing these people. No, no, no. Unlike we're going that. to take over two tables in Oaxaca and eat and drink and play Scrabble. Yeah, I played last night. One, one, lost one. Here we go. This is one of my all-time favourite books, and it's, it's... Oh, I think that's quite a cosy read, My Family and Other Animals. My Family and Other Animals, which I remember so strongly reading. I was about ten, and we'd gone to Wales camping, where we used to camp in South Wales in the Black Mountains. And for some reason, I wasn't in the tent. I was sleeping in our car. I think I think some, one of my sisters brought along a school friend. There wasn't re- any room, so <laughs> I was sleeping in the backseat of the car. And I woke up early, and it was raining, and I looked around something to read, and there was the book that my sister was reading, which was My Family and Other Animals. I didn't know anything about it. And I started reading it, and it was like somebody had blown open the wall and let sunshine in, and I read it all day, and I walked between meals reading it, and I read it every moment of the day, and I finished it that evening. And I could not believe it because as well as... I was always interested in wildlife anyway, as well as the wildlife aspects. It was so funny. It made me laugh so much. And I read it and reread it and reread it. And when we eventually did it in school, I was a little bit miffed because I regarded it as my mm. book. I didn't really want to share it with anyone Other else. Other people have heard of this. Gerard Darrell. He's my Gerald. <laughs> did your sister love it as much as you did? No, not as much. Oh. Yeah, did you no. feel a little bit like, oh... Well, you can't have it then. Yes, yes. You're the wrong person to read it. I am the right person. I think it's mainly because I'm obsessed with wildlife as well. So it's the, you know, the twin, the double whammy of funniness and wildlife, yeah. Because there are lots of, I think, you know, really great, really beautifully written nature books and various guides at the moment. But they, I find some of them quite earnest. And to have that where you can be really funny and spirited and observant It's, and quick. it's still unusual. I do read quite a lot of uh, nature books, but... I particularly love ones with a bit of funniness in them. Yeah. Now, oh, here I see um, Jane Gardam, the Queen of the Tambourine. I am. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I've never read Jane Gardam, and I know I will love her. But she did. I think one of my all-time favourite Desert Island discs. Oh, I haven't heard that. Is I she haven't read 90s? this yet. I read Old Filth recently, which I absolutely ah. loved. 
and it was because I listened to the backlisted pod ah. on Jane Gordon that I read that. Uh, yes, this is Ooh. Taiwanese edition of... Um, you get sent foreign editions, which is wonderful, but then you don't know what to do with them. I've got something like some 14 Norwegian editions of Crooked Heart, and I've really tried. I've trained up Norwegian clubs and everything. Nobody ever gives you an answer, because nobody wants some obscure, you know, writers... <laughs> or they answer in Norwegian, copies. you think... Huh, yes, I have no idea. But this is a lovely, lovely edition. Oh, gosh, look at that beautiful illustration. It's yeah. a lovely, you know, the lovely... Ver- the vertical... I think it's read left to right. Yes, yeah, so right to left. And it's, um, it's you know, the, the vertical columns of exquisite uh, pictograms or characters, anyway. Other um, than, obviously, here and in English-speaking countries, do you know where you're the most popular? Is there a um, country that... Don't be that Popular anywhere? Oh, um, I'm sure you are. Uh, they said France. They ah. did the most beautiful. Oh, look at this! If you think that's beautiful, this is this is Ooh. Wed Wabbit in French, which is Dans le Monde Pestaculaire, which is deliberate um, spoonerism. Et terrible de ma sœur Mini est de son vilain lapin. Oh, <laughs> so it's it's basically in the in the in the spectacular world or in the pestacular world of my sister Minnie and her evil rabbit. Is that so, octopus the logo of the publishing house? Uh, yeah, really it's nice. called poop, poop fiction. As in, you know, it's a really nice a, a pun. But it's a beautiful thing, and I I got a little bit arsy about you know illustrating these characters called the Wimbly Woos, and I have to say they bent over backwards, and in the end I love the illustration so much. Um, I just nodded through everything. I thought it was wonderful. It's the most beautiful edition. So maybe France, maybe France. But I'm very fond of Web Wabbit. I think it might be my favourite book. It's the book that made me laugh most. Writing it. I'm sure you've been asked this before, and I'm sure it's an annoying question. Could you say that you prefer writing for children or for adults, or would you hate to do one and not the other? They seem to come from different places, and if I've been squeezing my brain trying to write something for adults, if I then go on to trying to write something for children, you know, maybe on the same day, it feels easier, it feels oh, more gosh, relaxed. So really switch between projects that quickly? I can. I mean, I mainly don't, because at the moment I'm... Uh, uh, I'm on the deadline for the adult book, whereas I'm not for the children's, therefore there's no justification to doing it. But just occasionally when I feel really stuck in the adult, I'll go to the children's one that's in progress. And yes, it feels it, it, it feels easier, it feels more buoyant. It's like, you know, swimming in, in, in fresh water as opposed to salt, you know, it still carries you along a bit faster. Um, and I think because children just get on with things more. Mm. You know, they, they, they feel things just as deeply, but they don't spend as much time agonising about them, and therefore all that internal dialogue that you end up writing, or I end up writing for adult fiction, doesn't, doesn't occupy quite That's the same... There's no sort of place. wondering or justification. You know who you are and what you're about, and you, right. you yeah. crack on. Yeah, you crack on. Listen That's to exactly. the grown-ups talking about Latin roots of things. That's right. That's, going. That's, right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So um, so I do enjoy it, and, and, and I... I my aim, particularly with Web Wabby, was to write a funny book for children. And I I did make myself laugh a lot doing it. And I was very, very pleased with it. You know, I was very, spent a, a, a good analogy that's often used. It's not my analogy, but with jokes is, is their musical nature. You know that you have to hit the beats and you have to feel it's right. And I spend a lot of time reading stuff out loud and thinking, oh, that needs an extra syllable in there. Or that's not quite the right word. But when you've got it, you feel so pleased. And I ended up doing the um, audio book, not because I'm an actress, but because 
I really knew how these jokes should be told. I knew how it should be read. So I ended up doing the audio book for Web Wabbit. And um, there are so many different voices in it. So I had to record... There are these creatures called the Wimbly Woos that come in loads of different colours. And they've all got different... Each colour's got a different character. So I had to record each Wimbly Woo on my... Um, record each Wimbly Woo on my phone and uh, you know, play it back when I needed. But Wed Wabbit himself has got a huge screeching voice and I started to lose my voice. So in the end, we, we recorded all his stuff at the end. Um, <laughs> but I did enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I was really, really proud, proud of it in the end. It was great. And this is, oh, this is the German edition of Wed Wabbit, which is, oh. as you will spot, not a wabbit at all, but a... Fox. A fox, a Wed Fox. Apparently, because it, partly because it goes with, well, it's called Fitzfoops Musweg. So Fitzfoots must go. But um, apparently uh, st- uh, cuddly foxes are big in Germany. Oh. Don't ask me why. I love how the French one, it's a sort of long and very kind of expansive, yes, explanatory yes. cover with lots of detail. And that's just really sort of, that's three words. Go. That's right, isn't it funny? Yeah, I, I got a Norwegian translation of one of my um, uh, children's books and um, I got a couple of notes from the translator and he was the most meticulous translator ever. And he spotted a couple of typos in the English edition that I hadn't spotted, the, the copy editor hadn't spotted, the editor hadn't spotted. It was extraordinary. Isn't that amazing? So I admire translators greatly because I'm not a linguist. I don't know. I'm hopeless, always was. Well, there's so many different jobs, isn't it? Because it's knowing two languages very well, but also knowing them well enough to kind of do a sense translation as much as a literal one. Yes, 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 exactly. Exactly. Extraordinary. And how they did Wed Wabbit, which is full of puns, full of puns and rhymes. I mean, my God. Huge thanks to Lissa. Please do beg or borrow her books and binge them all. They're exactly what we need in these times. And please ask your local independent bookseller if they can get you old baggage or their finest hour and a half. Uh, They really are worth waiting for. It takes a little while to get your books at the moment. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow paperback chasers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyB. Also, please follow our brand new social media accounts at YBooked, that's the letter Y and Booked on both Twitter and Instagram. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. And we are now on Facebook also. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this from Ella Montgomery. Don't be led away by those howls about realism. Remember, pine woods are just as real as pigsties and a darn sight pleasanter to be in. See you next time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.